Hi everyone, Rich here. We're changing up the format. I hope you like it. Several years ago, I was in the Boston Logan International Airport, coming back from a week-long business trip to Europe. Tired, but in good spirits, I walked up to the U.S. Customs and Border Protection agent and proudly handed him my shiny new passport. I had received it only a few months prior, and it featured that cool new microchip that stores all of my personal information found on the photo page of my passport. I was expecting to receive a warm welcome and maybe even a question like, hey, how was your trip? Instead, he looked at my passport, glanced up at me, checked my passport again, then looked at me with a concerned expression and said, something's not right. I need you to wait here. The agent summoned someone over and about 30 seconds later, a fully armed, very official looking law enforcement officer approached me. He asked me to follow him, like I had a choice, and escorted me into a room separated from the rest of the airport. For the next 10 minutes, I was grilled with questions like, how long have you lived in Boston, sir? Where did you live before you moved here? Where did you live before that? How long were you in Europe? Can you tell me the exact street address of where you lived in 1998? After a lot of qualifying questions, the interrogator, as I will call him, looked up at me and asked, why do you move so much? Stunned, I responded, is that against the law? Sensing I was losing my patience, he asked, how do you like Boston? My reply, I like it even less today. The interrogator finally stopped what he was doing on his computer, handed me my passport, and said, Welcome back. For a span of about 15 minutes, there was a legitimate question as to whether or not I was actually a citizen of the United States. And by the way, I was never told why I was being detained. Well, fortunately, there is a better way to verify identity, and today, we're talking to someone who's at the forefront of that effort. Phil Wendley is one of the key players in the movement toward user-centric digital identity. As the founder of the Internet Identity Workshop, he's bringing together technology innovators to create the most trusted solution for verifying identity, while putting control over personal data back into the hands of the individual. Oh, and hopefully, this will help all of my future international trips go a lot more smoothly than the one at the Boston airport. You're listening to Privacy Files. This episode is brought to you by Anonymy Labs, makers of MySudo, the world's only all-in-one privacy app. And Sudo Platform, the cloud-based platform companies turn to for seamlessly integrating privacy solutions into their software. And please check out our newest offering, MySudo VPN, now available in the App Store and Play Store, a consumer VPN that is actually private. Phil Wendley, welcome to the show. Thanks. Good to be here. This is a very interesting conference that you have. So I guess before we get into the details of what the Internet Identity Workshop is, maybe give me a little bit of, of, of your background, and then we'll talk about kind of how this, how the IIW got started. Sure. So um, yeah, I got into computers really early. 
I won't say how early because that'll give my age away, but uh, I've been interested in them for a long time. I got my uh, PhD and I did something called formal methods, which is essentially using uh, automated proofs to prove, uh, in my case, it was the microprocessors worked correctly. But uh, then I got kind of captured by the web, started a company and you know, did e-commerce for a while and all of this web stuff. And when I was done with that, I got um, asked by the governor, Mike Levitt, to be the CIO for the state of Utah. So I became the CIO and did that for a couple of years. And when I was done, I was kind of kicking around doing some consulting, um, trying to figure out what was next. And a friend of mine, Doug Kay, who was the founder of an early podcast called IT Conversations, said, well, you should write a book on digital identity. And I said, well, Doug, I don't know anything about digital identity. And he says, no, you do. Just think about what you did as CIO. I'll bet almost all of it had something to do with identity. And as I thought about it, he was right. And so 2004, 2005, I wrote my first book on digital identity for O'Reilly called Digital Identity. And uh, that was published. And I kind of you know, got into this whole identity world. And that's how I got into identity. And I've been doing it for, you know, the last, what, 18 years, something like that. You know, lots of other stuff in between. But, you know, identity's kind of been the foundational part of what I've done. And I guess there's been a lot of talk, obviously, about decentralized identity over the last couple of years. It it sounds like uh, a big part of this this driver for you was giving people more control, I guess, at least on the, I mean, obviously there's the corporate side to identity, but then on the individual consumer side, there's this, there's this notion of giving people more control over their personal information. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because this has been a theme for a long time. It, you know, it, it isn't brand new. It's something people have thought about for a while. In fact, you know, my first digital identity book was largely about how do companies build identity systems for themselves, right? That was that was kind of what we what it was about because that's what I did as CIO, right? I was interested in how the state of Utah used identity. And then about the same time though, there was a few things happening. One, there was a push towards more federated identity. And so, you know, this is this is kind of ancient history, but Sun had started a project and now I'm going to forget the name of it. And there was, you know, Microsoft with uh, their project Hailstorm, which everybody got up in arms about. And so uh, there was a Sun started a project that eventually morphed into something called the Liberty Alliance. Right? The Liberty Alliance was a effort to not have one company, aka Microsoft, be in charge of identity on the internet. Right. That's that was kind of that's why it was called the Liberty Alliance. Right. Because we we're going to be free from this from this corporate overlord. Um, and and so, you know, Liberty Alliance did, you know, SAML, other federation um, kinds of protocols. And that was kind of a start uh, back in the early 2000s with uh, people thinking about, well, what should we do in order to keep identity from being controlled, not just by Microsoft, but by any small collective. Um, at the same time, there was another group of people who were interested in something that we called user-centric identity. In fact, there was a there was a podcast by Steve Gilmore, 
uh, it was called the Gilmore Gang. He still does the Gilmore Gang as a podcast. Uh, but at the time, um, he had invited, this was like the th New Year's Eve of 2004. He'd invited a bunch of people who were interested in identity to be on his podcast. And it turns out that like 30 people showed up. It was way too many people to have on a podcast. But we still went through and did it. I mean, as a podcast producer, you can imagine the, the chaos that ensued, right? But but it was a great discussion. We talked a lot about um, identity. And the feeling was that we needed to get past this idea of identity coming from companies. I might say, well, wait, here we are in 2023, and we're still trying to get past this idea of identity being assigned to people from companies online, right? Digital identity. And so, yeah, this has been a long road and we're still not at the end of it. But th that was kind of what people were thinking about with user-centric identity. Um, Doc Searles and I were part of that podcast, along with a number of other people. And Doc and I thought, well, we should have a conference and talk about this. We, we tried to get something going early in 20, 2005. And we we didn't. Doc met a woman named Clea Young at a Giants game of all places. It was part of some conference, right? They went to the Giants game as part of the conference. And he happened to sit next to Clea and, they, and she calls herself Identity Woman. So they were talking about identity. And he said, well, we're trying to do this conference. She says, oh, I want to do a conference. So along with Clea, Doc and I did a conference um, in the end of 2005 that we called Internet Identity World. And um, at the time, there were four different URL-based identity schemes that people had come up with for uh, doing what we thought of as user-centric identity. There was uh, Dick Hart had something called Skip. Johannes Ernst had something called LID. The folks at LiveJournal had something that they called OpenID, and then there was something called, I'm going to get it wrong, XRI, that was the right initials, that Drummond Reed had, had come up with. And so we thought, well, we'll get all of these. URL sounds like a great way to build identifiers for people online because the DNS system already exists. We'll get all these people together. We'll have a couple of conferences we'll figure out how all of these URLs are supposed to work to provide an identifier for people. And the problem will be solved and we can all go off and do the other things we want to do. So we held IIW in 2005. We had another couple in 2006. We do it every six months. And it turns out we didn't solve all of the problems and all go off and do our own thing because here we are in 2023 and IIW is still happening. We'll do the 37th edition um, this October at the Computer History Museum, where we always do it. And, you know, and while we were thinking about user-centric identity and URL-best identity schemes, namely OpenID, you know, that's that's what OpenID was, was a URL-based identity scheme, um, did go a long way. I mean, if you think about how identity works online now, as opposed to how identity worked online in... Um, you know, 2005, 2006, a lot of progress has been made. I mean, things like OAuth, OpenID 2, which is, you know, has the same name as OpenID that we were doing in 2005, but is, you know, different um, from a protocol perspective. Those are both um, 
Yeah, th those are big changes. I call that in my in my book. I call that the, the latest book. I wrote another book just recently. I, I call that the social login identity meta system. Because um, you know, the, and the reason I call it social login is because at the time we kind of imagined that everybody would go off and get a domain and have control over their identifier. That's not how it turned out. How it turned out was um, Google, Facebook. Amazon, uh, Microsoft, a few others created open ID providers who then became identity providers. And so now, you know, when you go to websites, a lot of them will let you log in with Google, say, or log in with Facebook. And, you know, that's using your social login, essentially, to, to go to these other sites. And it is user centric. You know, the user is part of that process gets to choose what websites they use their login at. So, so that part all succeeded, but it didn't go far enough in my and others' opinions. And so now we're, you know, at another, you know, we're moving towards this, what people call decentralized identity or self-sovereign identity. Uh, so, you know, just lots of things happening. And so when, when did it change from Internet Identity World to Internet Identity Workshop? Oh, sorry. Did I say World? It was always Identity. Oh, it was always Workshop. workshop. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that was that was my mistake. Yeah. Oh, no problem. Talk a little bit about how the IIW works. So you said it, there's a spring and a fall session. So you've got another one coming up here, and not too far away, I guess. Yeah, but October you, 10th through 12th. Yeah, and you call it the unconference. Maybe you can explain a little bit about what that yeah. means. So if you come to IIW, what you're going to find is that there's no agenda. Right. So we don't have a program committee. Um, sponsors don't get to pay for opportunities to give keynotes. You don't sit in a big conference room and have, you know, people talk to you while you sit in the dark and type on your computer or look at your phone. Instead, what happens is the very first part of every day, we do what we call opening circle. And in opening circle, literally everyone sits around in a circle and there's usually about 350 people at IIW, give or take. Uh, so it's a big circle and we sit around the circle and Everybody gets to write on a eight and eight by ten card uh, the name of one or more sessions they want to hold. Right, so they create a card for each session, and then they get to stand up and say, "I'm Phil Windley. Uh, I want to speak about how we can build agents that are programmable in order to do self-sovereign identity." And um, then I sit down. And the next person stands up and says what they want to talk about. And then everybody goes and posts them on a wall. We have a big grid. It's usually, I don't know, there's usually 10, 13 different rooms that people have. Some of them are big. Some of them are small. Uh, and different times through the day. And people put them on the grid. And then people decide which ones they want to go to. And they go. So, so that's how it works. It works uh, surprisingly well when... Uh, this this was all Kalia's fault. I'm going to blame her because she's the one who uh, said we should do this using what's called open space technology, which is a facilitation methodology that Kalia knew about. And we now have professional facilitators that come and help us do this. But um, when she said that, I thought, oh, my word, this is never going to work. I couldn't even imagine you know, how this was going to work. Cause you know, I was, I was an academic, I was used to academic conferences with program committees and all of this, but it works great. And I think the reason it works great or one reason it works great is because the topics at IIW are always what the people who are there want to talk about. 
Right? So rather than having a program committee that decides the agenda and then people decide whether or not they want to come based on what's on the agenda, instead, people come because they have something they want to talk about or something that's important to them or something they want to learn about that they know other people are coming and are going to talk about. And, you know, we, we like to say that um, whoever comes are the right people. And that applies to the sessions. It also applies to the entire workshop. You know, the, the people come, they decide what the topic is. Now, for the last four or five years, the predominant topic has been self-sovereign identity or decentralized identity. Uh, you know, that kind of started in 2015. There were a few sessions. 2016, there were a few more, right? But by the time 2017 hit, I mean, that's been the predominant topic. But before that, you know, topics like open ID or user managed access or, um, you know, OAuth or, you know, th there have been, you know, kind of waves, I, th I think of them as that, that people come and talk about. And so IAW changes with the times because it's, you know, based on the people who come. And I think that's really its secret and the secret to its longevity. Uh, and so, like you said, we have it two times a year. Uh, because, you know, the conversations seem to go you know, that fast, that quickly. If we had it once a year, I don't think we'd we'd get nearly the coverage that we do. Um, but it's been really fun. And do people do people come to the conference or the unconference, I guess, uh, fully prepared with, like, say, a PowerPoint presentation? Or is this pretty much just this is organic and it just flows based on who's driving? Some people do. Yeah. So some people will come and they'll have you know, they'll have thought out, oh, I'm going to do these three presentations at IAW. And they have one for every day and they, you know, produce their PowerPoint and they get up and they essentially deliver a PowerPoint talk. And, you know, that's that's one of the ways people do it. Other people, um, you know, often will come and say, I want to talk about X. You know, let's say it's wallet technology. I want to talk about decentralized identity wallets. But they don't necessarily come with a PowerPoint deck. What they come with is a couple of slides with a couple of questions, or maybe they just write them up on the whiteboard. We make sure we have whiteboards everywhere. And then the experts who are there say, oh, that sounds like an interesting conversation. They come and there's a conversation that happens. We, we take notes. We have note takers in every session so that people can find out about the sessions that they missed afterwards. So, so it works really good. So, sometimes people just say, I want to talk about the new DIDCOM version three protocol, and I don't know anything about it. So please come tell me about it. They're, so they're not going to run a session at all in the sense of delivering information. They're just essentially hosting a discussion where they hope the right people will come and, and tell them something that they want to know. So you, you get you get you know everything from either end of the spectrum. Who who is the event good for? So what what are some examples of um, I guess roles or responsibilities? from different companies that, that attend and do they reflect uh, a variety of industries, I guess, as well? There are big companies and little companies, right? startups, you know, everything from, you know, one guy, you know, working in their basement to, you know, Microsoft and Google come, right? Um, there is a lot of technical discussion, tends to be, you know, kind of proto protocol based, um, you know, or, or, you know, demonstrations of new things that people are building, that sort of thing. We get a lot of discussions with product managers who are there trying to figure out what is the product, what should features should the product be, what works, what doesn't work. 
Um, you know, earlier I mentioned that, you know, things like uh, OpenID, OAuth, user managed access, DIDCOM, these are all protocols that have grown out of IIW in one way or another. Uh, you know, FIDO, you know, pass keys was something that has been discussed a lot at IIW. So, so you do tend to get those kind of kind of technical discussions. It's a good place for people to come and, and do that. But there's also non-technical discussions where people talk about the ramifications of a particular technology or what's the social implications of this. So different topics. I mean, like I said, whoever comes to the right people and they bring their topics with them. So I would imagine a lot of the conversations are around thinking about innovation and over the horizon technologies and their people are brainstorming and exchanging ideas. So you get you get more of that side. It's it's not a conference, I guess, if you're looking to generate leads necessarily, I guess is what I'm getting at. No, it's it's not that. And in fact, you know, we don't have booths. Um we do have demo days. So, you know, so if you've got stuff to demo and people people love to see the demo. So we do have you know, a demo session where, you know, we do, we, it's kind of like speed dating. We call it speed demoing. So, you know, so you know, there's a bunch of tables, usually 15 or 16, you know, round tables and each demo person sets up at a table with a, you know, placard that says what they're doing. And then, uh, you know, people just go from table to table, spend like five minutes, you know, listening to a pitch about something, move on, you know, kind of pick and choose where they want to go. So so there is, it is a good place to generate interest in things that you're talking about or to, you know, find the people who can help you, you know, solve particular problems. But, yeah, we don't get a lot of, you know, if you think about a lot of conferences, you know, you get a lot of people who aren't digital identity people who go there, right, to find out how to solve their digital identity problem. And certainly we get those people too, right? I mean, we'll get people from a company who says, oh, I heard I should come here and, you know, learn about something. And if they do, they'll find people who want to teach them and, and help them. But yeah, it's not, you know, there's not a lot of booths where people go around and, you know, pick, pick up swag and that sort of thing. Yeah, when I first heard of the concept, I thought, boy, this has to be total chaos, but it sounds like it runs pretty smoothly. It does run pretty smoothly. You know, the, the, I mentioned before that we use the methodology called open space technology. And the, the guy who founded that can't think of his name right now. But anyway, he says the reason he decided to do it was because he would go to conferences and he found that the most interesting conversations were those that happened in the hallway in between sessions. So he wanted to develop a way to hold conferences where it was just all hallway conversations. And that's, you know, one way to think about it. If you if you like to go to conferences and find the most interesting things or the things that happen in between the sessions, then IIW is going to be a great place. We have, you know, big space where people just kind of sit around, you know, big, big round tables. And a lot of times, you know, you'll find a dozen, two dozen people sitting in those, sitting out there, just kind of talking to someone else about something and having a conversation. It's not a formal session. They didn't post it on the wall. They you know, they're not going to take notes, but, you know, they're talking to Jeff or whoever about this problem that they have and finding some mutual solution. So, so yeah, it works, it works really well um, because people just kind of self-organize. So, yeah, let's talk a little bit about, you mentioned self-sovereign identity. Others will use the, the term decentralized identity, but there's been a lot of buzz around that uh, over the last year or two, especially. Um, where, where do you think that technology is going with respect to these virtual wallets and um, verifiable credentials and where, where where do you think it's going 
Where is it yeah. right now, actually? Let me start by talking a bit about terminology and self-sovereign identity versus decentralized identity and uh, verifiable credentials and other things. I preferentially use self-sovereign identity. And the reason I do that is because I don't want to lose sight of the goal, right? The goal is to give people autonomy and control over their digital identities and and not have it be something that's given to us administratively from some company, right? So I use SSI because I can imagine a lot of decentralized identity solutions that would not be self-sovereign. Now, it's it's hard to imagine self-sovereign solutions that aren't decentralized, but those two things are not necessarily synonymous in my book. And so that's why I use that. Now, I understand why people say decentralized identity, you know, and ID tech and other things, because, you know, it, it can be off-putting for some people. But but I preferentially use SSI when I'm talking about it. You know, I, I think I, I mentioned my book before, and I mentioned that, you know, I talk about uh, what I call the social login meta system, which is largely based on OpenID and OAuth, right, those technologies. And early in the book, I make reference to Kim Cameron's laws of identity, which if you know, your listeners have not heard of Kim Cameron's Laws of Identity. It's worth going out. Just Google Laws of Identity, read Kim's paper. This is from 2004. And, and I like to say that Kim was, he's, he died recently, unfortunately. Uh, we lost, we lost a, a great uh, visionary in the world of identity, but he was a being from the future. When he wrote his Laws of Identity paper in 2004, I don't think most of us really understood what he was saying. And now going back and reading it with the lens of SSI, right, it's clear that he was, you know, on to a lot of the ideas and principles that we all incorporated later as we started, as we went down this journey, right? So somehow Kim had seen this really early on. And so early in my book, I talk about the laws of identity, and then I use those laws at times throughout the book to talk about why certain identity technologies work, maybe don't work, have limitations, et cetera, you know, based on, based on Kim's laws. Kim also introduces in that paper, the idea of identity meta systems, right? The idea that a technology like OpenID, for example, is not an identity system. You know, Amazon's login with Amazon is an identity system. It's built on top of OpenID. Right. So in Kim's parlance, OpenID is a meta system that allows others to build identity systems on top of it. And it's similarly to how the Internet is not really a communication system. It's a communications meta system that allows people to build communications uh, systems on top of it. Right. So same, same kind of idea. So I, I identify the social login meta system as one of the important identity meta systems in existence today. And in fact, if you go look at uh, the identity meta system with respect to Kim's laws, it does pretty well. Like I said earlier, it was designed with this idea of user-centric identity in mind. It was seen as a way of giving more control to people. And, and I don't think that the people behind OpenID were at all disingenuous about that. I, I think that really was a design principle and it has been preserved in the design and pro of OpenID and OAuth as they have progressed through the years. That said, the social login meta system is not as decentralized as we might like it. 
not decentralized enough to give people full autonomy over their identifiers. Like, like I said earlier, for lots of reasons that, you know, are, are interesting, but not necessarily germane to this conversation, the OpenID meta system got to the point where it's really only supporting a handful of important identity systems by the standard identity providers that we've identified, Google, Facebook, Amazon, uh, Microsoft, et cetera. And so, you know, just, just the idea, just the terminology, right, of an identity provider, right? I mean, do, do you really, I mean, you're a human being, you walk around, does someone provide you with your identity? Well, I guess maybe you could say, well, your parents named you, right? But but your identity is more than your name, right? So there's this philosophical, to, you know, couple, couple of different philosophical points of view about identity, which I think are, are important. One is the bundle of sticks uh, analogy, right? So the bundle of sticks uh, analogy about um, identity, and this is like from philosophers like Hume and others, is that your identity is essentially a collection of attributes. And the social login metasystem is essentially based on that idea that as long as your identity provider can collect from you and then provide to others the right set of attributes, that's all that's needed to provide identity. And and there's a lot of and there, there's a lot of utility in that, right? I mean, we should not discount at all the utility that we get from that. There's a second philosophy, which is called substance theory. And this is Descartes and others who proposed or, or per, were proponents of this philosophy. Descartes, is, uh, if you recall, is the uh, philosopher who said, I think, therefore I am, right? Uh, and that's really kind of the, you know, if you boil substance theory down, that's what it is, right? That, that behind all of these attributes, there has to be something, some substance that all of those attributes spring from or attach to. Um, and that's what I mean earlier when I talk about um, you having an identity outside of the attributes that Google or somebody else might have, you know, stored for you somewhere. You are rich regardless of, you know, all of the attributes that might be attached to you. And uh, online, we don't have that. Right? There, there is, there is no technology online except maybe SSI, that gives us um, the ability to have digital substance. So I like to say that we are ghosts in the machine, right? We, we exist by the grace of large companies who give us, provide for us, right? In the identity provider sense, they provide for us identity, um, digital identity. And without that identity, we have very little ability to act effectively or operationalize our online existence. Now, you know, that's not to say that what we have is awful, right? I mean, yeah, we could talk about privacy ills and all of these kinds of things. But in fact, for most of us, you know, the fact that we can go online and order a book or you know, search for something or, you know, send emails or whatever. These are all great things, right? But if you think about how are they all attached, they're not really. Most of them are independent silos, right, that that act independently. They're not really connected to each other. The only thing that ties them together is you, 
not a digital version of you, but you, right, the physical being who logs into this website and then transfers information through your brain down into your fingers to go to some other website and do something, right? So, so that's what I mean when I say we are ghosts in the machine. We have no digital existence that is independent of what we get from, you know, like I said, by the grace of these companies who give us an administrative identity. Um, yeah, and and if you lose that, right, you are. I mean, let, let's say you've used Twitter to log into a whole bunch of places, and now you lose your Twitter account. Well, I mean, for most places, that's not the end of the world. You can go, you know, recover your account or something, but it's a big pain in the neck. And that's because your only existence in that case is based on something that Twitter gave you. I guess we should call them X now, that X gave you. Maybe that's appropriate that they're X. Uh, but uh, but anyway, I mean, you, you get the point, right? That, that we don't have this independent online existence. So what does this all have to do with SSI? So SSI is, I think, our best hope for having an independent, operationalable, operationalizable online existence that is independent from all of the things that people give us. Right? Uh, it's the substance theory of digital ID to the bundle of sticks theory that digital ID has provided us before. So, so how does it do that? I think perhaps the most underrated and yet to be fully, fully not only appreciated, but but designed and built technology of SSI is the wallet slash agent, right? So, so, I mean, from a technical perspective, there are two pieces, right? There's the wallet that holds data and there's the agent that actually takes, you know, that, that speaks the protocol and is able to do things. But, you know, I typically just say wallet. Most people just say wallet, but when they say wallet, they really are talking about the agent, right? Cause what they want is the action that the agent provides not just the storage that the wallet provides. Um, and the reason I think the wallet or agent is the sleeper technology of SSI is because that's the thing that people have that gives them their independent existence, that makes them peers online. In the same way that the browser provided a tool that people could use to actually go out and do things on the internet, right? That I think the wallet is the same kind of thing, but even more foundational in that it gives us a way to collect all of this and pull all of this together, be able to take all of the things that we care about. And yeah, there are going to be attributes, right? But those attributes are going to be inside verifiable credentials and they're going to be held in our wallets and we're going to decide how they get used Right. That not not necessarily always personally. I might have an agent that is programmable and, you know, my programmable agent will decide to provide attributes to people or, or companies when needed. But but that's, I think, the essence of SSI is giving people this digital existence by providing them with tools that allow them to be peers and create their own digital existence rather than relying on one that is provided to them by some identity provider somewhere. I guess the main thing is I'm trying to understand is you've, you've been seeing this rise in self-sovereign identity or decentralized identity being talked about in the IIW. What I've heard some conversations about 
test cases where a virtual wallet's being used to, for instance, enter into a country. So you don't even have to have your actual physical passport with you. Are you seeing other examples of this being used in practice right now? And I mean, how far away do you think self-sovereign identity is to being kind of a mass adoption type yeah. of a product? It's interesting. That is one of the topics of conversation at the last couple IIWs, right? Is, you know, what are the use cases? Where's the adoption? What does it take to get people going? I mean, when I said earlier, there's a lot of technical conversations, some product conversations, you know, others, this is, you know, not a technical conversation. It's more of a business conversation that happens at IIW. And a lot of people are interested in that. And I think what you're seeing is, you know, you mentioned like, yeah, I think it's Indicio that has the Aruba travel document. I think I think it is, you know, getting into Aruba. Uh, I, I keep thinking that I need to make a case for going to Aruba just so I can try it out. But that's, you know, probably a you know more selfish desire than technical one. <laughs> but uh, but anyway, I mean, there are there are others. I know there was uh, some wallets uh, being used, some verifiable credentials being used at South by this last spring. I think Trinsic was behind that. So you're seeing these kinds of use cases. I know there's a, a a group called Farmers Connect, which is using them to give verifiable credentials to uh, coffee growers and other agricultural use cases. So so you're you're starting to see some of this come out, but I I do think that that is you know one of the open questions, right? Is what does it take for this to get adopted? What are the real use cases that drive this? And so I think. If you're interested in that, IIW is a great place to come and talk to others about what they're doing. There tends to be a real openness there and people, you know, sharing, you know, what they're trying to do, what their use cases are, where they're seeing uh, uptake. And, uh, you know, at this point, you know, I don't necessarily believe that any of the self-sovereign identity companies, right, usually they think of themselves as you know, infrastructure for verifiable credentials, right? That's usually kind of how they play it. I don't think any of them necessarily see it as a competition just because there's so many places where you might be able to use this. So I think that's kind of the state that we're, that's kind of where we're at, right? We're, we're at the point where, are there going to be technical advances? Sure, there's always technical advances, but the technology we have right now is probably good enough for most of the things people want to do. You know, I don't think it's anybody saying, oh, well, you know, I really can't use this because, you know, the cryptographic underpinnings just aren't right. You know, that, that's not the discussion that's happening. It, it's more along the lines of, okay, we got the technology right. We understand how this works. How do we get uptake? How do we get people to adopt it? And so I, I think that's a, an important discussion that's happening right now. Of course, we had Dr. Paul Ashley on, um, boy, it's been probably 10 episodes ago, and he talked about, you know, some of the landscape and the verifiers and the issuers and how how he views the, um, in, in the you know, he calls it, of course, decentralized identity, but SSI, you know, either way, he he really believes that's a better use case for blockchain technology than creating cryptocurrency, which it's fascinating yeah. because it's not just about, I think managing your own personal information, but it's really just a quick way to verify you are who you say you are and here's your academic history and here's your rental history and you're applying for credit, whatever it might be. It's just a, it's a much more streamlined process that seems like you can trust the system a lot more. To that point, if you think about how identity works in the physical world, it's decentralized, right? Now, you know, a lot of people 
you know, if you ask, you know, who's the identity provider of the physical world, they'd say, well, it's the government, right? Giving me my driver's license or my birth certificate or, you know, my government ID card or something like that. But in fact, it plays an important foundational role. It really isn't even a, a big part of how identity works in the physical world. I mean, if you think about it, everything from the shopper loyalty program at your local supermarket to movie tickets to academic transcripts those are all identity use cases right gift certificates right these are all identity use cases none of them have much to do with government issued id right they're still identification right they still have to do with identity because in fact almost all of those use cases could be represented by a verifiable credential I uh, did a back-of-the-envelope calculation not too long ago and concluded that just based on the number of businesses in the world and their relative sizes, I just broke them into three different categories. So, you know, it was an estimate, but I, I estimated that there were at least 20 million different credential types, not, not credentials, credential types that you could imagine being formed by businesses and others as they just decided, here's an identity system I need to build for my purposes, right? When, when I build a uh, membership program for the local gym, I'm building an identity system. Now, what am I doing? Well, I mean, if I'm talking about the physical world, I'm going to probably give people a membership card, right? That looks like a credential. How am I going to get the information on that? I'm probably going to ask people for it. I might ask them for an ID in order to verify they are who they say they are for some purpose, right? So now I've got somebody using one credential, like a driver's license, to prove who they are so I can issue them another credential. That's how identity works in the physical world. I don't see any reason why, now that we have the technology of verifiable credentials and decentralized identifiers, I don't see any reason why that isn't how it can happen online. And that is an incredibly decentralized system. Um, think about it this way. If I go into the pharmacy and ask to fill a prescription and they say, we need you to verify your age, maybe it's a controlled substance, right? I'm going to pull out my state-issued ID, my driver's license. Why does that work? Well, it works for a couple of really important reasons. One, the pharmacy trusts the state to have done a pretty good job uh, verifying the attributes that are on that ID, right? The state's done a pretty good job of packaging it up so that it's, you know, relatively tamper evident at least. And it's easy for them to verify that that ID I'm presenting belongs to me, right? It's got a sophisticated biometric device on it called a picture. And so, but the pharmacy doesn't have to have a legal agreement with the state to do that. They don't have any kind of API integration with the state in order to make that work. In fact, you could decide for whatever purpose that you have, that you need to see people's driver's licenses for some business purpose that you have, and you can just start doing that tomorrow, right? It's, it's that decentralized. There's nobody who's in charge of who can collect that information. It's nobody's in charge of whether people will show it to you or not, right? People will show you their driver's license if they think they want to, right? For whatever thing you're promising them. So, so it's very decentralized. And like I said before, not only is that decentralized in terms of 
you know, who can decide to see a driver's license, but everybody can decide to issue their own credential for their own purposes, right? That same pharmacy can decide to give you a membership card or a loyalty card or something because they decided they need to issue an identifier and identi identity information. So the whole system is incredibly decentralized. And so anybody who believes that we can build a universal identity, right? A universal identifier. You'll hear that call from people sometimes. Or that all of this is solved if we just had a good digital government ID. I mean, they're, they're just not paying attention to how the world works. You know, the world is a decentralized place and decentralized identity and decentralized identity that gives autonomy and control to people, aka SSI, is what we need in order to make the digital world work. Wow. And do you see, I guess one of the questions that keeps coming up is the, because it's like any new technology, you need the full infrastructure in place, right? So you've got the, the issuers and the verifiers, and I think that has been the one part of it that's kind of been a question mark. Have you seen any developments on that side of it? Yeah. So earlier I said that while the, the government ID isn't the end all of how we solve the digital ID problem, obviously government ID does form an important foundation for a lot of things people want to do, right? I mean, travel documents, for example, are all tied up in government ID. Uh, lots of things we want to do verifying our identity. You know, most of the identity information we have online right now is self-reported. So it's not really that trustworthy in, in terms of, you know, if I really need to know that you're rich, right? How, how are you going to prove to that meet? that digitally. Well, we've all done this, right? I mean, you've probably been in a situation where somebody asked you to take a picture of your driver's license and send it to them or show it to them online, right? I mean, that's what we do right now. So, so while government ID isn't the only thing, it is an important foundation. And I think we're starting to see real movement on behalf of governments, both in the U.S. and outside the U.S., maybe even more outside the U.S., that will provide that. And, and I think that's going to be important catalyst, if you will, to getting more credentials issued because now, uh, you know, people will start using verifiable credentials as a way of transferring trustworthy data or identity information to others. And once they do that, right, and the company accepts it, you're only one short hop from the company saying, well, I want to issue you a credential and people saying, okay, well, I've got the technology to assume it. Now, you know, there's all kinds of interop issues and, um, you know, technology issues and things that we need to work on to make all of that seamless. But that's what IIW is for, right? If you're interested in that, come to IIW and talk about it. There are all kinds of people that are trying to solve this problem of, of interop and, and how, do, how do we make this work so that, so that it works for everybody. You know, the government things you're seeing, I mean, there are several states in the U.S. that are uh, doing at least pilots with verifiable credentials. Utah, where we both live, it happens to be one of those. European Union, their digital wallet initiative, I think is really important, is going to provide a lot of people with the infrastructure they need in order to actually go out and start accepting and using credentials. There's a lot of work in Canada the provinces, some of the provinces have been doing it independently, and now the Canadian federal government is you know, trying to put an umbrella over that and, and pull it all together. So uh, the uh, government of Burma is doing things with verifiable credentials now. So I think we're starting to see some movement there, and that's going to provide an important, like I said, catalyst 
towards moving people towards having wallets and being able to accept and use verifiable credentials. And uh, Phil, as we, I guess we start closing this out, I was just looking at your LinkedIn. I think one thing that we kind of overlooked is you, you taught at the university level for 30 years. Yeah, I, I was uh, a professor at BYU uh, on and off, right? So I um, received a paycheck from BYU every year for 30 years. I wasn't always full-time because I kept quitting to start companies, right? So I, <laughs> I, I, uh, I started four companies in the process of doing all that. But, but yeah, I, I taught at the university level, you know, last probably little more than a decade was primarily around the idea of decentralized computing and distributed computing and, and teaching those topics. Awesome. And I guess uh, maybe an opportunity here to give people uh, websites, things that you'd like them to uh, to look at, to keep in touch with you if they want to figure out what's going on with the IIW. It looks like you also have a blog. Any Anything you'd like to promote before we close it out? Well, sure. I mean, my, my personal blog is windley.com, and I've been blogging there since, uh, uh, what, 2002, I think? when I started. So you know, 21 years now. And, you know, lots, lots of stuff about identity, obviously. I, I talk a lot about identity there. Like I said, I just wrote a book on digital identity. It's called Learning Digital Identity from uh, O'Reilly. And so, you know, that lots of detail in there about the things we've talked about today, uh, you know, branching out into other technologies, how they all come together. So I'd recommend that. And then Internet Identity Workshop. If you just Google Internet Identity Workshop, you'll get to it. The URL is internetidentityworkshop.com. Kind of long, but, you know, it works. So, yeah, I mean, those are all places where people can go to get in touch with me or find out more. And, you know, if you're interested in identity, come to IW. You're going to love it, and you'll find the right people there to have the conversations with that you want to have. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time, Phil. Yeah, it was great to talk. Thanks, Rich. Okay, I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. In our next episode, we'll be talking to someone who got his wallet stolen at the gym. Well, it's a little more involved than that. In fact, his story will highlight just how easy it is to access personal information about virtually anyone. Until next time, don't forget, privacy is a human right.